if you're able, you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It is our habit to stand for the reading of God's Word to show our respect and honor to it. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start reading verse 14. As you turn there, uh, I'd like to commission all the poets among us, if there are any, to rewrite that hymn that we just sang. It's, uh, it's public domain, so it can be done. And this is the task, to remove any mention of God dying in the hymn. You know, it's because it's Christ the man who died, not uh, uh, God. So, if you're a poet, Jordan, you can rewrite that. On a serious note, here is the word of our Lord, Ephesians 6, starting verse 14, reading through verse 20. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Glorious God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you speak to our hearts, even as we unfold it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've uh, asked one of our younger members to uh, come prepare today to help me with an object lesson. So, um, is Leland ready? Yes. Leland, if you come up here, once you have your belt on. Come on, Leland. All right, come on. So Leland is our illustration here. We've been talking about the, uh, the whole armor of God, and he, he sent me a picture, or his mom sent me a picture of him in the whole armor of God, and I already saw him fighting a sword fight today with somebody, and um, but he was doing good. Oh, your belt's coming out. I can't lose your belt. Your pants might fall off. <laughs> but one thing I think is important for us to notice is, I'm going to have you turn around. As I mentioned before, there's no protection in the back of the Roman armor. And that was on purpose, so that the Roman soldier would not run away from battle because he, the enemy could actually hurt him in the back. Thank you very much, Leland, for that. You know, the level of cuteness just went through the roof with your being here. So. Here's your belt. All right, go back. Good thing you had the armor of God. He's doing good. Have you ever heard the expression, God loves you and has has a wonderful plan for your life? 
Have you ever heard that before? Well, this is the first law uh, in the gospel tract, the four spiritual laws. And this law is designed to make the gospel more attractive to the unbeliever. If the, if the unbeliever knows that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, they're more likely to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a serious problem with that so-called law. Although it is true that God loves His people and that whatever plans He has for them are wonderful because He is the wonderful counselor Himself, they're not wonderful in the sense that the four spiritual laws meant it. A brief overview of what the Bible, how the Bible describes the life of a Christian would see that the life that God has wonderfully planned for His people is described in the Bible as a farmer working hard at plowing his field, or an athlete running a marathon, or a boxer fighting for his life, or getting rid of everything you have, or dying to self, or as in the case of our passage today, a relentless war against the most powerful enemy in existence. So yes, God loves His people and He has a wonderful plan for His life, but perhaps not in the way that 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 statement was originally meant. We are nowhere promised a life of ease. God wonderfully sustained His people through all of these experiences, but He does not promise spiritual ease in our lives. He does promise unequivocally to be present with us in all situations. In Matthew 28, as he's finishing his ministry among the disciples before he's taken up to heaven, the very last words he speaks to them are these, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our God, when speaking to the Old Testament church as they're going through... a lot of things in their lives because of their own unfaithfulness to God. God who remains faithful despite of our unfaithfulness tells them to the prophet Isaiah, Fear not, for I, am, I, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned for, no, for nor shall the flame scorch you. God's wonderful plan for His people is that they walk through the water, that they walk through the fire, and that He is there with, with them. So God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan may include a lot of suffering. And it's not going to be a plan of spiritual ease in your life because you are called to fight the devil. It is a mortal combat, as it were, fighting to the death. And yet, our Lord says, no temptation, no trial, no struggle has overcome you, overtaken you, except which is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested or tried beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide to make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And one of the ways that God is present with us in His equipping us for the warlike life that we are to pursue is through giving us this armor that we've been considering for the last few Sundays. And we've seen that the purpose of the whole armor of God is to cause us to stand 
before the, the attacks of the enemy. The exhortation in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord is a culmination of what Paul has been teaching in Ephesians. If you look at verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So Paul has been working up to this moment here at God's eternal plan to redeem a people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's bringing Jew and Gentiles together into one people, the church, which is the Israel of God. He's governing all the relationships in the household, all preparing us to be able to obey his command to be strong in the Lord. Everything that Paul has said is getting us to the place that we can be strong in the Lord and to stand the attacks of Satan. In essence, the full and complete revelation of God in the 66 books of the Bible was given to us so that we can be strong in the Lord in the mighty of His power. Paul, Paul saying, take everything you've ever learned from God and that's going to be what's going to strengthen you to fight the war that every one of you as a believer is called to fight, and it is in the midst of fighting, whether you know that or not. And notice that the reason we are to be strong in the Lord in verse 10 is so that we can stand against the attacks of Satan and his army in verses 13 and 14. Look at what Paul says in 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the belt of truth. And you can see how important this notion of standing is to Paul as he teaches us here in Ephesians. And the means through which you can stand, the means through which you can resist the attacks of the devil is, to, is the putting on of the divine armor, graciously and wonderfully provided to us by the same God who gave us Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Have you noticed so far how important this notion of standing is to Paul as we fight the devil? Stand. Don't, don't, be, mo- don't be moved. Be unmovable. Uh, don't let Satan take back any of what Christ to, uh, has conquered and moved forward towards uh, attacking Satan. In verses 14 through 16, if you were reading along, you noticed that the, the words having girded, having put on, having shod, and taking, all ing words, those words are all describing the manner by which we stand. They're describing the verb stand in, in verse 14. How do we stand? By having girded the belt of truth. By having put on the breastplate of righteousness. By having shod, by having put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. By taking up the shield of faith. And then notice that the last two pieces of the armor in verses 17 and on. Allow us not just to stand to resist the attacks of Satan. But also to attack and to push Satan back. And to cause him to flee, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter. The helmet, wearing a helmet, would allow the Roman soldier to momentarily lower his shield with the head still being protected and attack the enemy with the sword. And with all these parts, then, we're able to stand before the Lord. Now, having said all that, it is important for us to acknowledge that these different parts of the armor are not strictly mutually exclusive. You know, don't look at the at faith 
as separate from salvation and salvation separate from righteousness and righteousness separate from the gospel. They, they overlap. They have, they're, they're not uh, airtight as categories. But here, Paul is just talking about all the things that God has given us to withstand the, uh, the attacks of Satan. These are all related parts and overlapping. And I mentioned to you that Paul probably got the inspiration from for this illustration here in Ephesians 6 from the Roman soldiers that were all around him. Remember, Paul is in jail, and the way that he was in jail was a house arrest in Rome, and there was a, a Praetorian soldier physically chained to him most of the day. So he spent most of the day looking at these guys, literally chained to him. So he had the idea... And then the Roman soldiers were all over the empire as well, so you got that idea. But that's not the only place that Paul went to get that inspiration for this illustration. He also went into his own knowledge of the Word of God, because God in the Old Testament is said to have worn the armor, the similar armor as we read here, to fight his enemies. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59 this about the Lord. Starting in verse 16, he says, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. And his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So, in Paul's mind... We put on the divine armor to fight the enemy because that's how God himself fights his enemies. And we use the same weapons. And we have considered already the belt of truth. We have considered already the, um, the breastplate of righteousness. So today we're going to consider the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith. So look at verse 15 with me. And having shod... That just means put on shoes. Your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar realized it's something that uh, all the great generals before them had not realized. And what they realized was that footwear matters while fighting a war. They were the first ones to actually invest time in designing the proper footwear for the soldiers to wear during battle. Not only during battle, but also to move from field to field and to account, to account for all different terrains. And that's the image that Paul has in his mind. William, William Hendrickson, which is a very good New Testament commentator, says this. He says, one important reason for Julius Caesar's success as a general was the fact that his men wore military shoes that made it possible for them to cover long distances in such short periods that again and again the enemies were caught off guard, having deceived themselves into thinking that they still had plenty of time to prepare an adequate defense. The, the, the Roman shoes, the, the, the sandals they wore, the boots they wore, were, were very thick so that nothing could go through. They have spikes coming from spikes coming on the bottoms so they could stand and not move and they could go uphill and downhill and muddy and not be stopped and that's the idea that we have here the gospel of Jesus Christ is what causes us to do those things what prepares our feet for this war that we are raging against Satan is the gospel of Jesus Christ and verse 15 says the preparation of the gospel of peace the word preparation just means preparedness that we are ready to fight when we have the gospel of Jesus Christ trapped on our shoes 
on our feet, the idea of, of, of being shod means striping or binding to our feet. And notice that we put on the gospel and leave it on. We put on these shoes to fight Satan and leave it on. We don't take them off anymore. It's important that we realize that the gospel is not something that is important in the beginning of the Christian life. And then we forget it and move on to new things. The gospel is the basis for the entire Christian life. We never abandon it. We never leave it. We continue to stand on it. That's what consumes us. That's what guides us. That's what directs our thoughts, our actions, our, our, our beliefs. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Calvin, a 16th century pastor, said, We must be shod with the gospel if we would pass unhurt through the world. That's how we go through this life, is with the gospel of Jesus Christ always with us, in our feet and in our minds. F.F. Bruce, which is a British scholar in the 1900s, said, Those who must at all costs stand their ground need to have a secure footing. In the spiritual conflict, this is supplied by the gospel, appropriated and proclaimed. For, so if the gospel is so important, if the gospel is supposed to be part of us every day of our lives, if our lives are supposed to be established in the gospel, what is the gospel? Talk about the $10 trillion question. What is the gospel? The word itself means good news. Six, I don't remember that, but about six years ago, we, in our Sunday school hour, we studied through the David Platt's book called uh, Countercultural Gospel. And Platt, in that book, offers a very good definition of the gospel. So let me read it to you so that we have this idea of what the gospel is. The, good, the gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Did you get that? I'm going to read it once more. Because this is of utmost importance. The gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. So that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. And that idea of reconciliation is of utmost importance in the gospel. This idea of reconciliation is included in our passage when Paul says that the gospel is the gospel of peace. Elsewhere, in Romans 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul says that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we cannot stand against Satan in the power of God if we have not been reconciled with God. This is impossible. God is the enemy. Listen to this. Well, last week was Easter, and remember I said that we're all advised, the pastors are advised to tone down the message, so don't scare the people away. So I toned down by saying that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. That was as much as I could tone down. Uh, listen to this. God is the enemy 
of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, God, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, is your enemy. Paul says in Romans 5.10 that God started working in our hearts when we were in enmity against Him. So make no mistake, this enmity, we are enemies to God. We don't want anything to do with God apart from His work in us. But this enmity is mutual. God is not wringing His hands in heaven because He loves sinners apart from Christ so much and can't wait till they come to Him. In, in Psalm 5, verse 5, the psalmist says, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. And listen to this. You, talking to God, you, God, hate all workers of iniquity. That's God's attitude towards those that are not in Jesus Christ. Those who don't believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. In Colossians 1, Paul, writing at the same time as he's writing in Ephesians, he says that those who have come to Christ have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness. In, cha in chapter 6, verse 12, it says that the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of Satan. But through Jesus Christ, the Father provides a way of reconciliation for those who trust in Him. Again, Paul says in Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And another pastor says, It is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which enables us to stand firmly in difficult places and to move swiftly in opposing the enemies of the soul. Peace comes from knowing whom we are in Jesus Christ. Knowing that, that, knowing that will repel the attacks of Satan. If you, will, if you want to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you want to put on the, feet, the, 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 the shoes of the gospel of peace, you need to know who you are. And you need to know you are in relation to God through Jesus Christ. And you need to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, By faith, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a believer, the most important identifying marker about you is that you are in Christ that you stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important about you. There's much, no, nothing more that identifies you than that. Christ is your Savior. And we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace by appropriating the gospel, making it our own. Remember F.F. Bruce said that? And by also proclaiming it. So we appropriate the gospel by believing that what it says is true of you. The only way to... Appropriate the gospel, make it yours, is not just believing that Jesus did all these things, but that he did it in your place for you. Remember the definition of, of, gospel, of the gospel that I read to you twice? Let me read it now, and I'm going to replace all the pronouns with a first-person pronoun. Because that's, that's what be your confession. The, good, the gospel is the good news that the just and the gracious creator of the universe has looked upon a hopeless, hopelessly sinful me, 
and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that I, who turned from my sin and myself and trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, am reconciled to God forever. Is that true of you? Can you put your name in that definition? Is that what you believe are Shorter Catechism, question 86, question 86, uh, 86, thank you, that was helpful. Uh, As what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. And it follows that question by asking, what is repentance unto life? To which it answers, Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, in apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's, that's the appropriation of the gospel. Turning from ourselves, turning to Christ. That's how the gospel becomes yours. That's how we put on the shoes. But as a second part of it, we also put on the shoes by not only appropriating it, but also by proclaiming it, speaking it to other people. Now, it's, it's likely that I, uh, Paul had Isaiah 52 verse 7 in mind when he talks about the feet that are dressed in the gospel. Because Isaiah 52 verse 7 says this, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion... Your Lord, your God reigns. That's the background that Paul has in mind when he says, put on the shoes of the gospel. He tied this passage to the proclamation of the gospel, not only to the people of God, but to, the, to, all, to all the nations in Romans 10, a classical passage for evangelism and missions, when Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they here without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent it is as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things why are their feet beautiful because they are wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace that's the only place in the bible isaiah 52 verse 7 that praises the feet of men for some reason in the Bible, feet are somewhat shameful things. Now, it, it, it's a sign of, of being a creature. Remember the, the creatures in, in, in Isaiah 6? The, those mighty, massively powerful angels that stand before the throne of God with six wings. Remember what they do with two of them? They cover their feet. What was Moses supposed to do once he came into the presence of God? Take your shoes because this is off, oh, because this is holy ground. And yet... The feet of those that are dressed with the gospel of Jesus Christ are beautiful because they are proclaiming salvation to the nations, to all nations. So we stand against the power of Satan by proclaiming the message of salvation to people around us. That's what we do in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our works, our schools, our sports team, whatever we go. You know, Acts 8 says, starts by saying that Saul was creating havoc in Jerusalem. And that the Christians got spared, uh, uh, spread all over because of that persecution. And he says, And as they went 
They proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, the way that's written, the idea you get is that these people are running for their lives and they see somebody there. Um, let me just stop you here and tell you about Christ uh, just for a second because I need to keep on running because I'm going to die because this guy is going to kill me. And that's the idea. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything, everybody we see. And that's why we send missionaries to the mission field as well. That's why we need to be behind that so that Satan can be ultimately defeated as the nations are translated from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. J. Adams says, presenting the gospel of other, to others in evangelism is one way to overcome the wiles of the devil. So he put on the feet of the gospel of peace, the shoes of the gospel of peace, but also we take up the shield of faith. Look at verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The words above all in our version means in all circumstances, all the time. It's not that the shield is more important than anything else, but that you need to have the shield on you at all times. There's no moment in our lives of warring against Satan that we put down the shield of faith. And faith here is an objective faith. In the original language, there is the shield of the faith. It's not your, your subjective experience of believing Christ, but the content of what you believe. That's what we hold as a protection. As Satan shoots fiery arrows at us, it is the content of the Christian faith that we hold before us to protect us. We stand against Satan by holding all our theology in front of us. This is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Jude it's, it's likely writing Second Peter, Peter Judas, Peter's secretary, he's writing Second Peter, and then he hears that things are getting really bad in the area that today is Turkey. So he stops writing Second Peter, and he writes the epistle that today we call Jude. And why does he write it? Because people were putting down the faith. They were putting down the shield that God has given them to protect them from the attacks of Satan. So Jude tells them, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Because that's what protect, that's our shield. What we know about God is what keeps us from being burnt by the devil. Our shield is our cognitive and experiential knowledge of what the Bible teaches concerning every category of theology. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter, six, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all scriptures is inspired God-breathed God's spoken and is profitable. And what is it as we appropriate the scriptures? What does it do? It equips the men of God, the person of God, for every good works. So Satan is constantly throwing stuff at us. He's constantly shooting his fiery darts, that, trying to destroy us. And we are able to stand these attacks by knowing what God says. Remember the two weeks ago, I think, it was the broken record illustration? But I feel like I'm a broken record. I'm only telling you the solution for almost every problem. Read the Bible. Listen to sermons. Be in God's house to hear what God has to say to you. That's our shield. We're able to stand these attacks by knowing what God says. Isn't that what Jesus did? Remember what Jesus did in Matthew 4, Luke 4, as he stands before Satan. Satan is throwing the whole quiver full of burning arrows at Christ and trying to tempt him. What is the simple way that Christ responds to all those temptations? Three words. It is written. And that's it. 
The psalmist did that too. In Psalm 42, as his soul is going is depressed and he is in despair and he wants to just quit everything and abandon his faith in God, what does, his, what does he tell his soul? Why are, so, why are you so downcast, downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Because he knew his theology. And that was the shield he's using to stop the fiery darts of Satan, of doubt, and so on. That's what the people of God through the ages have done. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, you have this incredible statement where the people there are being told by other people around him, hey, yes, you need to hear from God. And the best way to hear from God is to go find a medium, a spiritist. Go find somebody that can connect you to the other world that can bring a soul from the dead and they can talk to you and they will lead you to God. And the prophet says, remember what the prophet says there in verse 20? To the law and to the prophets. If they don't say what these people are saying, then kill them. <laughs> That's simple as, as that. It is the law and the prophets. It is the word of God that is our protection against the attacks of Satan. When, when Satan tries to destroy us, Remembering what you know to be true from the scriptures will put out those fiery arrows he is launching at you. And that's the shield that you the shield of faith that you hold up. So people of God, God has and is equipping you for war. He loves you, and he has the most wonderful plan for your life. And that plan includes doing mortal combat against Satan. To that end, he has given you truth, he has given you righteousness, he's given you the gospel, and he's given you faith. Take them up. Fight. Because there's no other choice. You either fight or you die. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you the Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and has won, the, has won the victory on our behalf. Enable us to follow him in standing against Satan. We pray, Father, that as we are faithful to him, the nations would come to know him and, that they, and they would bow their knees to him as their Savior, as their Lord. And we pray that even day to day as we come to know him even better, that we too would more willingly bow our knees to him as he is our gracious Savior and our mighty Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.